Alright, everybody, welcome to Flyers AD here. It is uh, Monday, January 17, 2022. Here! <laughs> and, uh, gotta get that in at least once an episode somewhere. But, uh, you know, I guess we gotta talk about the Flyers again. The Allegedly. Yeah. The 13-17-7 Flyers. I don't think I've actually looked at the record yet this year, so that's impressive how, uh, how tr terrible they truly are. Lost to the Rangers again. Uh, lost again to the Rangers. Again, Rangers again? Fuck it, who cares? They lost to the Rangers <laughs> Saturday. Uh, I didn't watch that game. I was at the Phantoms. I don't think you watched that game either, did you? Um, I, I did. I caught the second and third period of it. Mm. And, I mean, it wasn't as bad as you would have maybe been accustomed to. I thought the Flyers showed some pushback. At times, um, they were better in terms of the underlying process, uh, like shots for percentage, didn't get completely blown out of the water in terms of the expected goals battle. It was closer than you would have thought. The Corsi battle, the Flyers actually won that. So, I mean, there were some positives to take away. I thought that in the, in the third period, the Flyers really had the Rangers on their heels there um, towards the end of the third. But, you know, it's like we've always said, are we back to moral victories? And that's kind of like what we are now. You know, they lost, but they didn't look as bad doing it. So yippee ki -yay. So, I mean, the short answer is they lost and they're they're still bad. <laughs> it's the same thing we were saying in 2016. They're taking steps in the right direction. Great. Yeah. I was I was periodically checking out on the game um, throughout the Phantoms. The Phantoms got destroyed by the Penguins, but Wade Allison is still incredible. Um, is my... Uh, <laughs> short review of the weekend. Um, and it was like, 1-1. One, one. Okay, they did great. I missed Kim Atkinson's goal. And I did see a, a gif of it later on. So it was kind of neat. Of course, the first Flyers game I miss in literal years and fucking Cam, uh, Cam York scores rather than Cam Atkinson. But too many Cams, goddammit. But uh, yeah, they lost. I, I don't know how. I didn't go back and rewatch the game. I have no interest in watching the Flyers if I don't have to right now. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad Lindblom scored. You know, that fourth-line bum, Oscar Lindblom, now has the same amount of goals as your top-line right-wing, Travis Konechny. So, there you yeah. go. <laughs> I fucking and hate look, Travis not... Konechny. Christ! <laughs> and, look, I've been guilty of criticizing Lindblom, but I guess that was all kind of on me and lowly, like, I guess too high of expectations. But, I mean, that line was the best line by far for me, the Limblom-Lawton-Konechny line. Uh, I thought that on the Limblom goal, like, Konechny did a real good job to go to the front of the net. And it, the thing about Travis Konechny is when you see him play games like he did, where he's able to elevate two guys who are otherwise, you know, third or fourth line talents... You wonder, like, why don't you do that on a consistent basis? And I think that's been the biggest problem with Travis Konechny on both sides of the coins. For guys like us, we say you go, you know, cold for 100 games at a time or whatever run he's been on since the 2020 playoffs. And then for people who think that he's, you know, one of the best wingers in the NHL, they use this to stand on and say, well, you know, when he's at the top of his game, he's like this and he's like that. But it's just like, okay, but... Anyone could get hot for a game or two. And I don't think anyone's ever tra um, Travis <laughs> questioned Travis Konechny's skill set and his ability to be an effective hockey player when he is at the top of his game. 
but it's just how many games are you going to have to go through of dull hockey on his part to get to a very good game like we saw on Saturday. He has uh, five goals on the season. He's currently on a 20-game goalless drought and only has 16 in the 101 games since the 2020 playoffs started. So he's turning into JVR, essentially. He'll go quiet for 20 games. He'll have three or four that look really good or rack up some assists. Everyone goes, oh my god, look how great he is. And then he goes cold again. Like that, he's the next JVR. He is not the next Claude Drew. He's the next JVR in terms of his overall consistency. And just an incredibly, incredibly frustrating, uh, frustrating pl- uh, player. And uh, it's more frustrating that the fans think so highly of him than anything. Fuck. Did you read that thread yesterday I put out about <laughs> him not scoring goals? Holy fuck. The uh, you know, I grew up watching Leclerc and uh, Gagne score forty goals, and now I'm all people talk about is how much they love Konechny and Abe Kubel. It's like what the fuck happened? And oh my god, that thread is uh, just full of full of bullshit, is what it is. Just every last excuse you can think of. And uh, I heard somebody say forty goal, uh, twenty goals is the new forty. <laughs> like that twenty means. is some kind of. 20 is some kind of magical feat these days. It's just like, fuck off, man. I can't, I can't take it. What? Why? 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 Why does anybody <laughs> love Travis Konechny? Why can't we just admit that this guy's not very good? And like, Oscar Lindblom, the fourth line bomb that everybody turned on this year, now has the same amount of goals. So, you know, that's speaking. I'm glad Lindblom's doing well. I never gave up hope. I just think that he's one of those guys that just, you know, the, the expectations were far, far too high. Uh, upon his return from his his cancer battle, that he would immediately jump back into the shoes of that guy that was seemingly in the midst of a breakout season in 1920 with, what was it, 11 goals in 30 games, whatever it was. And I think people were expecting that. They were expecting a top-six winger, and they didn't get that. You know, I, I do think he kind of is the spiritual successor to Michael Roffel with the style of hockey that he plays and kind of his ability to sit anywhere in the lineup and not look out of place. And, you know, offense just isn't his strong suit. But I think if given the proper opportunity, he can score goals now and again. He, you know, doesn't really look out of place uh, most of the time uh, wherever he plays. So I really do like Lindblom. I like his usefulness. But, uh, you know, that's uh, not great. But speaking of players that, you know, are not getting elevated anymore, uh, Morgan Frost is now your resident fourth-line bum. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with this one. I just can't believe after 10 years of fucked up player development and fucked up player development and fucked up player development, you're doing the exact same thing you did with everybody else with Morgan Frost. And that's just, we're going to give you a chance, but the second you fuck up, fourth line winger! (laughs) And now he's stapled to the fourth line and is like, what? Listen, I don't like Morgan Frost. It is no secret I don't like Morgan Frost. I think his ceiling is some faceless 50-point winger at best. You know, like, I, I, but holy shit, why are you limiting this guy? And I realize as the roster gets healthy, you know, he had his success with, what was it, Giroux and Atkinson, and now that Farabee's back, you know, he kind of comes in and fills that role, and you know, you don't exactly have a lot of offensive firepower on the team to build around, but, like, putting him on the fourth line with, was it, Brown and McEwen? Or, like, fuck, man. What are you doing to this poor kid? Why Why are we doing the same thing that's failed with every other prospect with Morgan Frost? At least pretend you want to see this guy develop. Uh, 
When I look at what's happening with Morgan Frost, I'm kind of with you in the sense that I don't really get it. And if you look at like underlying numbers, he's kind of middle of the pack across the board for the Flyers, like 10th among forwards and expected goals for per 60. Uh, 11th among forwards and expected goals against per 60. He's right in that range in his Corsi percentage. I think he's 12th. So, like, he's not being overtly bad, and his numbers aren't far off, underlying that is, from where a guy like Joel Farabee has been. And I don't think it's a secret that Joel Farabee has had his fair share in ups and downs this year. I, I think what's going on with Morgan Frost is they had a kind of an idea of what he was supposed to be in terms of him coming up to the NHL. And that was probably a playmaking offensive catalyst, a guy who preferably was a center. And when he's been playing, he's just been another face in the crowd. And now that he's not having the opportunity because of injury, I would assume, and this is all just a hypothesis on my part, you have the coaches trying to spark a, a fire under his ass to say, well, until you get to that level, you're going to be playing 4C. And I don't think that's a necessarily a good way to handle a guy like Morgan Frost. Like, if he's not where you think he needs to be, then send him back down to the Phantoms. It's yes. that simple. Yep. Because him playing 4C over Connor Bonneman is not the difference between them winning or not. No. It's not. But... At the same time, could I, I don't know how to explain it, could I blame them for trying something different because they sent him down to the Phantoms at the beginning of the year because he didn't bang down the door the way that they were hoping to. He lost the 3C job to Scott Lawton. So maybe they're saying, well, you going down to the AHL and dominating. And just before I go any further, you said that he was clearly one of the better players with the Phantoms. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word dominating, but he was their best player by a pretty wide margin early in the year. So him going down there and being their best player clearly didn't translate to the NHL on any like long-term basis. I think we saw a spark from him in the first couple games playing left wing with Giroux and Konechny. But maybe this is Mike Yo saying, like, you know, man, we have a bunch of middle six wingers who could hit 50 points on a good day. Yeah, we like if that's who you're going to be, we like we're not going to play you. You're going to have to separate yourself from the crowd to get to that level. And there, I mean, look, I, I do think this is a bit of a coaching flaw. I, I you know, there's no secret that I'm not a fan of the way Mike co Mike coach Mike Yo coaches <laughs> as the head guy behind the bench. But at the same time, can I blame him for going down a different route with Frost when they've tried, you know, the sending him down to the Phantoms approach before? Like, for you, like, do you think that maybe their thought process here is that no matter how many times we send him down, he always comes up as the same player, so now we're going to try a different route to take with him? Yeah, I, I, th I that's probably what they're ultimately thinking. And it's just Frost, like, <laughs> Morgan Frost is a playmaker. Like, he can be a high-end playmaker on a good day. That's what he does. You know, his biggest weakness of his game, even though it's improved this year, his biggest weakness is still his overall two-way ability. So, you take him away from all offensive hope on the team and you put him on the fourth line tasked as a shutdown line, essentially. And it's like, you're like you're not setting the guy up to succeed. You're not even giving him a chance to succeed. 
You know, I, I, I just don't understand what you're doing here. And yeah, you got a lot of wingers right now that are just 50-point fucking nobodies. You know, most of them, in fact, other than Claude Giroux, pretty much. You know, I... I, I, I I, I get it. Your your roster's composed of the same player. And, you know, early in the year, I threw the thought out there that they were not going to call Morgan Frost up. So that way, they don't ruin his trade value. If you keep him in the AHL, you can't say he failed in the NHL. Well, now they fucking killed every last bit of his trade value because now he's just some fourth-line fucking nobody. So... I don't know what the plan is here. I don't know what the fuck the end game is here. I, I just, I don't, the, listen, even I, who don't like Morgan Frost and don't think highly of a guy, this is not the way I would go about transitioning to the NHL. Like, at least put him on somebody's wing, you know, let him slot in with Drew and Atkinson and move Faraby somewhere else, or move Atkinson somewhere else. Like, I, I just don't understand. Put him with some offensive talents. The only way you're going to squeeze anything resembling a good performance out of this guy. And for whatever reason, they just don't seem interested in doing that. I, I do think that they probably say, and this is not me agreeing. This is just me trying to make sense of the situation. Because let's look at the lines that they had going the other night, which was re- a relatively healthy lineup. You had Limblom with Lawton and Konechny. You had Farabee with Giroux and, uh, was it Atkinson? And then you had JVR, Hayes, and Jerry Mayhew. So that third line is a bunch of nonsense, and I said kind of like, you know, is Frost playing center all that important that you're going to give more ice time to a guy like James Van Riemsdyk or Jerry Mayhew? Uh, That's kind of like where I'm at, like just take Mayhew out of the lineup and put Connor Bunneman in there and then, you know, move Morgan Frost up to play with JVR and Kevin Hayes. But then I kind of think to myself, like, is that roster move? Is Frost playing in the, on the third line over Mayhew the difference between this team winning or not? And that's kind of like where I'm just like, no, I don't think it is. I think that whether Mayhew is there or Frost is there, they're still losing games. Nothing's going to change in that respect. So maybe this is Mike Yo's long-term plan, long-term kick at the can for developing Morgan Frost. Because it's like we've said, like, until guys like Forster or Denoyer are ready to make the jump, he's the last guy coming that's even remotely worth a shit. Unless I'm missing someone, someone down there on the Phantoms, and you could speak that to that better than I. But maybe they're saying, like, look, we're not winning regardless of where he's playing in the lineup right now. So we might as well just try and kick, give him a kick in the ass to try and get to that ceiling. Because... Another thing is what you've said, is that this guy has lost all that aura about him, about being a, what is it, a hundred plus point guy with the Sioux Greyhounds in the OHL. And this is like kind of what we talked about that they keep doing. And we talked about this last week when people want to make hockey trades to stay competitive. Well, you can't make a hockey trade to the same degree with Travis Konechny as you could have 15 months ago. You couldn't make a hockey trade to the same degree with Ivan Provorov as you could have 15 months ago. Like, all these guys are coming up and losing their value, and Morgan Frost is a prime example of it, because as early as 18 months ago, if not earlier, 12 months ago, he was a guy that probably was viewed as maybe not a blue-chip prospect, but a good prospect in the NHL who was a centerman. 
But anyone who scouted him this season is probably saying, okay, you know, this is a guy who probably has a 50, 55-point ceiling, but probably needs to play on the left wing if he's going to play in the top six. And what are you going to get for a guy like that? Like I said for, I've been beating this drum for almost two years now that at the 2020 deadline, they should have used him to try and go get Jean-Gabriel Pajot. And now that he's just another dude, I can't foresee him going back to the AHL. I, I really can't. Yeah, unless. I think so. Well, like for you, you, you're way more privy to what's going on down there. I kind of asked you this already, but is there anyone left down in the AHL that could come up? And is there anyone that Frost could benefit from playing with down there? Not particularly. You had two forwards, essentially, that were worth a shit in the High Valley. Tyson Forrester, who destroyed his shoulder a couple months ago and is going to be out for the year. And Wade Allison, who hopefully can stay injury-free for just a fucking few games this time around. And I assume he's on the fast track to getting called up because he had a phenomenal weekend again. So now it's just about him staying injury-free. I assume they just want him to get some goddamn ice time under his belt because he only played, you know, less than a handful of games so far. So I assume, like, that's it. That's the only offensive prowess he got, unless you want to call up, you know, Matt Strom or something. You know, German Rusov, maybe. But, uh, no, beyond that, you really don't have any forward options with the Phantoms right now. So it's not like... You know, anybody's ready to come kick down the door to replace Frost, but at the same time, you send Frost down and you call Allison up, like, you're putting Frost down there with essentially an ECHL roster, and that's not going to do him any favors. I don't think he gets sent down. I think that's a real bad look, um, and, and just essentially declaring defeat if you send him down. Um, but yeah, it was really the lineup more than anything. Like, Frost is 4C when JVR, Gary Mayhew, and whatever the fuck Kevin Hayes is doing these days are playing ahead of him in the lineup, and it's like, what the fuck? Like, you can't even squeeze this guy above Gary Mayhew of all people! You know? The corpse of JVR and Kevin Hayes? Like, why? Why? I, I don't know. This whole fucking situation. Like, I never thought I would get mad at them fucking up Morgan Frost development, but here we are. But because at this point, is it even development? Are we approaching a point where this is just who he is? Well, that's probably true. You're just... You're just fucking up an already overhyped, fucked-up hockey player who's not very good. But, like, man, it just feels like... I, I, at least give him a chance. Like, I, I, you didn't even elevate him in the lineup when everyone was out with injuries. He was still in the bottom six most of the time. I think there was one or two games there where he rose to the top, but everyone else, like, he's just been down there. He has really been in Yao's doghouse, and... I don't know. I don't even think he's been that bad from a two-way perspective. Certainly not nearly as bad he was in the past. And again, maybe just because I watched him all in 1920 and Lehigh be a fucking train wreck as far as two-way goes. You know, he's definitely just, he's like average in that sense. And his offense just isn't coming. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck they're doing with Frost. I don't know what you do with Frost moving forward. He's just some dude at this point. I would assume he's a trade ship, but. Even if, again, we just talked about, what the fuck value does he have as a trade ship now? Hi, you want my fourth-line center that's a complete bust of a draft pick for, uh, you know, your top star? They're going to laugh in your face and hang up the phone, so. Well, you, you've been watching him for a long time here, so do you, in your mind, is there anything that they've done to impede his progression? Like, do you think that he could have been better than what he is right now? No, I really wish they moved him to wing in Lehigh. I don't think he ever once took a rep on the wing, which seemed 
not great because anybody with two fucking brain cells to rub together should have been able to tell you that the best chance for this guy's success was on the wing in the NHL, and they never did that. I don't know how hard it is to adjust from center to wing. I don't know if there's a process there or or whatever. You know, they clearly wanted him in center in Lehigh Valley just because the team, again, is is pretty piss poor. And they were pretty bad in 1920 as well, and that doesn't help, right? And and Manny talks about this from time to time, you know, kind of building a winning team so your young guys know how to win. <clears throat> and stocking, you know, stocking the Phantoms with some kind of talent, which has been quite a few years now since since they have, um, you know, probably didn't help. You know, it's not like he was working with, you know, stars or, you know, AHL-level stars, rather, uh, when he was here in 1920 either. And this year is just fucking piss poor. So, you know, that probably could have helped a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they were hindering his development. I mean, they weren't putting him on the fourth line in the AHL, if that's what you're asking. Down there, who would be the best guy to play him with? Today? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Wade Allison. Uh, put him, you know, let him center Wade Allison. That, that's, I mean, that's it. Uh, in terms of offensive talent down there right now, it is it is bone friggin' dry. They're still coming back from uh, a COVID outbreak of their own, and you know, especially and got you know Gary Mayhew's still up with the big team, and Jackson Cates is still up with the big team, and Brandon Jackson Cates hasn't done much in the AHL, but you know a lot of the guys are you know Forster was the only one that was worth it, but he's hurt. You know, just so much of that team is just not very good right now. Uh, Willman is back down, which is good. You know, Wilson, who I believe is out right now. I don't know if I remember if he came back or not. I don't know. But, um, you know, he was there. But it's just a bunch of dudes. It is just a bunch of dudes. There's not exactly that, you know, one or two lines that you could put him on that would make him seem better than he actually is right now. I think also what hasn't helped him is how well Cam York has played. And, you know, because now you can't really use the entire argument. Like, oh, well, he's just been, you know, playing with a bad team and been not put in a position to succeed and all that when a guy like York has come up and obviously just a five game sample size, but he's arguably been arguably been the Flyers best defenseman, you know, since he's come up and obviously he's not getting like crazy tough deployment, but he's still playing a decent amount. I think he's averaging like probably like 17, 18 minutes a night, if I'm not mistaken, you know, he has the lowest expected goals against per 60 on the team right now. Uh, and, you know, aside from Ryan Ellis, but does he even really exist right now? You know, with 2.2, 2.36 expected goals for per 60. Like, I, I do think he has some things to work on in his own end, but that, that'll come with time. He has the best Corsi rating, like his goals for percentage. Like, he's been playing really good hockey. Gets his first goal the other night against the New York Rangers. So, for me, it's like when you see a guy like Cam York, who blew by my expectations, like I didn't expect him to play nearly this well right off the hop, it kind of puts a negative light on a guy like Morgan Frost, who is two years older than him and has played in the NHL, you know, much more than he has at this point. And Frost is struggling to just keep his head above water, and Cam York is actually excelling and standing out in a positive manner each and every night. So... You can't even use the whole, like, oh, well, he's just a young guy playing with a bad team argument. I do love me some Cam York, and he's blown my expectations out of the water as well. Um, just just phenomenal. And, yeah, there is probably some guilty by association there for Frost when you're looking at, you know, other prospects that have been called up this year and, and are underperforming. And 
You know, granted, York is putting pretty much everyone to shame. Even Travis Sanheim, who people still fucking consider a prospect at 25 years old and 300 fucking games under his belt. But we're not going to talk about that, no! But no, but uh, York has been uh, very, very good. Got his first goal. I would assume Ristolainen is either coming back tonight or tomorrow against their home-and-home with the Islanders. So I'm curious to see what they do here when Ristolainen is healthy and they come back. I mean... Yandel's not going anywhere. Whether we like it or not, he's in the lineup. So your six players are going to be Provorov, Risto, York, Braun, Sanheim, Yandel, right? Now, it's just about squeezing something out of those six, (laughs) trying to find the best competent three pairs that you can, and unfortunately, that is a very tough task, because no matter who the fuck you end up playing with Yandel, it doesn't turn out well. Or you have to reshape your entire fucking defense to try and fit York on the left side in the top four. I I, I put a thing about that on Twitter the other day, and I just, I don't know what you do here. My best guess, you go Provorov, Braun, Sanheim, Risto, York, Yandel. Because at least you keep your top four, which has been decent all season together, and York is just going to have to deal with... Keith Yandel. That's not ideal. That's not what I, you know, doesn't seem great, but somebody, I mean, is York playing with Yandel any worse than Sanheim playing with Yandel? You know, do you reline your whole defense so you can have Yandel Braun again, but they really like York and Braun together, so I don't know. I, I really have no idea how you go about breaking down these pairs to get the most out of them, but uh, there's no way Cam York can go down when Ristolina no. comes back. There's just no way. Yeah, I, I think so. Absolutely, you're right. Uh, I I actually think they may keep York with Sanheim, and then stick Ristolainen with Yandel. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's they seem to keep going back to the Provorov Justin Braun pairing. Yeah. It seems like that's the one they're gonna ride or die with, um, almost to a fault at this point. Like I just you know a guy like Provorov, I. I mean, I'm not. I can't really defend him anymore. It's just, it's, it's just tough going for him right now. And I don't think he can really get this thing back on the rails until he finds a partner of sorts that will, you know, kind of at least be a competent top pairing guy. But I mean, maybe if they tried to give York and Sanheim more of a role, and then you put Provorov with Ristolainen, and then Braun to stabilize Yandel, like. I think that York and Sanheim may stick together just because they want to keep York in some kind of a top four role. Yeah. And look, average time on ice per game at five on five, York is leading the team. Like, and that's saying something over Provorov or, or no, sorry, Sanheim has the most of five on five ice time per game, um, but with eighteen thirty four. But York has more than Provorov now. Obviously, like when Provorov and Sanheim were out for several games, that played a factor. And, you know, York's offensive zone start percentage is at 53 as opposed to Provorov's, which is at 44. So these are all, like, some sheltered minutes that are going on with it. But he has really taken this by the horns and excelled. He's playing damn good hockey right now, and I don't know if they're going to, for lack of a better term, sandbag him by putting him with a guy like Keith Yandel and... And we kind of talked about with Keith Yandel the other night, like, I know everyone hates him, and I'm not defending the guy, but, like, personally, I think that Yandel is a much better option than Kevin Connaughton or Nick Sealer, 
like I, I don't know what people want. Like if they want like just someone other than those three to come up in the lineup, but like if it's between those three, like I choose Yandel, you know, every day of the week. I don't know about you. Yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, when when we talk about Cam York on Twitter, they go, "Well, just replace uh, Keith Yandel with Cam York," and I'm like, "Okay, that means Sealer and Connaughton are still in the lineup, though." <laughs> you know? And it's like, are either one of those two any better than Keith Yandel? Like, you're picking the fucking, you know. I think Keith Yandel probably has the highest ceiling of Sealer or Connaughton, you know, and thus yeah. you keep him in. You know, he does have the ability to every once in a while set something up offensively, whereas Sealer and Connaughton are just kind of there and exist. Um, yeah, uh, you, 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 I, I would assume Yandel's in. I mean, he's still got a handful of games to go before he gets his streak, and... Even once he gets it, I'm not convinced he leaves the lineup. I highly doubt that he gets a streak in two weeks. And they're like, okay, you're in the press box. Now it's time to play, you know, Sealer. So, yeah, I would assume you just got to work around Keith Handel for this season. As much as people don't like it, I don't like it. But, you know, there's no point in arguing about it because Yandel's here. So you just have to make him work with York in the lineup somewhere. And, you know, this is the thing that I wrote about, you know, fuck, at least a month ago, maybe two months ago now, you know, about calling Cam York up in the first place, which is you have an abundance of lefties on the lineup, and, you know, your top two in Provarv and Sandheim are set for the time being, and, you know, they want to play everyone with Justin Braun. Unfortunately, Justin Braun is only one person, and he can't guide <laughs> both Pro V, Sandheim, and Cam York at the same time. But, yeah. uh, you know, you, you just got to kind of deal with it, and, you know, somebody's going to suffer alongside Yanel. It's just a matter of who they want down there, and... You know, Yandel Risto sounds real bad, but, uh, you know, what the fuck? What are you going to do at this point? You know, you got to work with Cam York. You can't do what you're doing to Cam York with what you're doing to Morgan Frost. Now we're just going to put him on the fucking third pair with Keith Yandel and let him suffer. So, I don't know. I, I, I would not be surprised if that lineup pops up, especially if they want their old top four back of Pro Bowl Braun, San Risto, but I just can't imagine that's the thing. You kind of got to figure out who you don't want anymore. Um, and, and put them down over the handle. So it's going to be tough. One of these defense pairs is going to look pretty friggin' ugly. It's just a matter of, you know, which two it is that uh, occupies a third pair. Risto Linen has been a curious case this year because I feel like he's excelled in the role he's been given, but not in the way that they've wanted him to. Like, I feel like they thought that they were going to be getting, like, this big shutdown defenseman who could, like, lock everything down in his own end. When in reality, his best contributions have been offensively. Defensively, I think he hasn't been great, but, you know, passable in the role he's playing. And a guy who brings a lot of intangibles in terms of physicality and toughness and all that. And I like the way he pl- he's played, but it's just been a different type of player. Like, I wasn't expecting him to be this high event, for lack of better terms. Like, when, when he's on the ice, like, he's either throwing around the body or sometimes fucking up in his own end or driving offense. Like, and I don't know why they've been so reluctant to not use him more in, a, in an offensive role, I guess. Because I'm saying to myself, is, is like, if you put him with Yandel and you give him very, or both of them, rather, very sheltered minutes, you know, starting a lot in the offensive zone maybe that could translate to offense. Like, a guy like Keith Yandel, his offensive zone start percentage is 58, which I agree with. 
But then you look at Ristolainen, and he's down to 46, which is, you know, just almost in line with, like, Provorov, Sanheim, and Braun, although the highest of those four by a healthy margin. And I'm saying to myself, like, what if, with how well York is playing, and albeit with some sheltered minutes, or deployment, rather, not so much minutes, but deployment, if you gave York a bit more of that, I don't know, tough deployment, and you used Ristolainen in a way with Keith Yandel to try and maximize his offense and his high-event high, um, hockey in a positive manner. Like, when you look at Ristolainen, do you think that, although he's excelling, it's kind of been in a different way, and the coaches have been almost reluctant to switch it up? They're not giving him any real opportunity to continue to grow. Um, they've been you know, dead set against putting him on the power play all season long, even when everyone was, you know, out with COVID, they just, they never really gave him that shot, which again, he, he has felt very useful as, you know, as an offensive producer. And really, I mean, you look at some of his numbers from Buffalo, he was a regular 40 point guy there, which is impressive, you know, for someone of his size and stature and seemingly clumsiness that, that he can, you know, produce that level of offense. And the fact that, you know, he, he kind of has been limited to a shutdown role, at least a perceived shutdown role with, with Sanheim. You know, he really hasn't done that. And <laughs> he's much better than everyone made him out to be going in. A lot of people were talking about him putting a fucking puck in his own net every time he stepped onto the ice, you know, when they first acquired him. But he's been very good, but yeah, I, I would agree. Very good, but not quite in the sense that I don't think I was expecting him to be good in. And I think it's kind of throwing a monkey wrench into their plans because they thought that he was going to come in and be like that stabilizing defensive presence. Yeah. But he's come in and been a guy that just causes havoc with his physicality and can drive offense. Like I've said that when he gets, you know, the reins loosened a bit and he can kind of, you know, forecheck and pinch in the offensive zone, I think he's one of their best forecheckers. Like, I've even seen some people say, like, why don't you try him as a net front guy on the power play? I think yeah. they tried that in Buffalo a few times. And I understand that they brought him in to help produce goals against, and they are one of the worst defensive teams right now. You know, under Mike Yo, I've said this numerous times, that it feels like they're just giving up way more shots in their own end, way less structure in their own end. But if you're going to do that, at least put players in a position to succeed. And I guess that they don't want to, you know, change Cam York's game. But I think that you can make the case that York already has a higher offensive or a higher overall ceiling than a guy like Keith Yandel. So if that's the case, like, or I mean, not Keith Yandel, Rasmus Ristolainen. Well, Keith Yandel as well, but that goes without saying. <laughs> so... I don't know. Like, I'm not saying that you can't use Ristolainen in a def more defensive role that they've been, you know, dead set on trying. But why not try him on the power play? Try him a game with Keith Yandel where he gets, you know, 55% of his shifts started in the offensive zone. Like, at this point, what what's the worst that could happen? Like, honestly, like, what's the worst possible outcome that can come out of this? And I know that a lot of people always come back to, well, then you traded your... First round pick for a guy who's a number five slash four defenseman. It's just like, okay, it was an overpay. I think it always was an overpay. I don't think anyone's disputing that, but you can't keep, you know, forcing a square peg into a round hole. 
And if it takes him being more of an offensive guy who brings physicality and could get more favorable deployment, then what's the worst that could happen? I mean, you may as well play him to his strengths at this point. And, you know, and we just talked about how shitty the overall structure of the defense is and the lackluster options they have on their blue line right now, which doesn't help us to line because you almost need him in that shutdown role versus giving him a little bit more time to wheel and deal, especially when he's paired with Sanheim. But, you know, I would assume they re-sign him. I'm not convinced he goes anywhere yet. I do think he's probably their best trade chip at the deadline, but you just gave up a fucking King's Ransom for him. I can't imagine they deal this guy. So if he is here for the long term, and this is a lost season, like, let him do his thing. Let him see, you know, go out there and see what he can do offensively and give him a little bit more rope. Put him on the power play. Put him in front of the power play. I don't give a shit. You don't have to put him on the point. Just let him go out there and do his thing. Like, see what you have in Ristolainen, so that way when you do re-sign him long-term and you can, you know, come back with a fresh slate next year, you can, you know, know what the fuck you're working with and you don't have to, you know, typecast this guy as some shutdown role that's not allowed to leave his own end because that feels like what they're doing right now. I think they're just desperately trying to find a guy to stabilize things in their own end. And unfortunately, that guy is Ryan Ellis, and he's nowhere to be found right now. And I do think that, you know, if Ryan Ellis was here and you could play, let's say, Justin Braun more in a defensive role, and I, I still love Justin Braun, but, like, if you could play him in a defensive role as that number four and him and Rista Linen could kind of, like, swap up and down the lineup in terms of if they needed a goal or if they were defending a lead like they could lean on each other for you know the tougher minutes and i and i still believe that that was the ultimate goal here in the beginning because you know justin braun i think is a passable number four defenseman if he's insulated properly top pairing guy that's a different story because he just doesn't do much in the way of driving offense but i think if he's just given let's say 18, 19 minutes a night to be a defensive guy, then on the second pair, then it's more than, you know, uh, fathomable. But you've kind of had to lean on Braun and Ristolainen in the way that you were leaning on Ellis and Ristolainen. And now it's just kind of like they're both collectively not good enough. And they're your top two right shot guys. Now, obviously, they've tried Sanheim on the right side a lot recently, and I think he's passable in that manner. If he can at least be better or, you know, passable in that role, it gives Mike Yo a lot more options in terms of fixing his defensive pairs. But then it goes back to the whole thing of like, well, Sanheim was finally playing very good hockey, arguably the best of his career. Are you now going to switch it up just to, you know, appease everyone else? It's a very unfortunate situation they're in. And it really stems from Ryan Ellis not being in the lineup right now. Yeah, not having your uh, top line um, righty is just, it's screwing everything up. You know, Braun just, I think Braun's very good, but he's not in the point in his career, you know, he's 34, 35 years old, whatever it is, that, you know, he just can't play top line minutes every night anymore, and you really don't have anybody else on the right side. And, like, that's the thing with Sanheim and Ristolainen as a pair, you know, both individual and together, is that, you really limit what you can do with your defense with those two because, you know, they they are guys that don't play well when you give them more minutes. And the second they, you know, when, when Provorov was out and those two were essentially your top pair, like, fuck, shit got ugly, man. They, they just can't handle more minutes. So you, you really screw yourself because you don't have Ryan Ellis. 
your second pair has to remain your second pair because they crumble under the pressure of more minutes, and your third pair really fucking sucks no matter who's on there. So, <laughs> man, it's just the missing Ellis, you know, really shifts everything. And I believe we talked about going into the year as well, you know, and how wooden your defense is. You were relying on Provorov, Ellis, and Sanheim wrist aligning with very little changes to that top four because you don't have anybody to change, you know. So, you know, they're uh, definitely reaping what they sown on the blue line when it comes to defense. And you just got to kind of hope Cam York can show up and succeed and be great. But then, you know, there's the whole problem with him being a lefty on a very left-heavy team. And, you know, yeah, your righties aren't uh, overly trusted. And, boy, it is not a great situation back there. After all these fucking years, we're still talking about how bad the defense is. This is the same conversation we had in 2014. <laughs> it's just different players. Well, Justin Braun, for me, is a guy that limits a lot of defensive breakdowns. Like, he doesn't give up a lot, but he's not great in the way of breaking the puck out. And yeah. especially when he's playing Owen over his head, it feels like it's always on Provorov to do that. And Provorov, I think, is a guy who kind of crumbles under, you know, constantly being relied on to break up the puck. And this is no slight on Justin Braun. We love Justin Braun. I've literally defended the guy since he was traded here, what is it now, 36 months ago or so? But it's okay to say that he's just playing above his head and he's not a guy that could really drive offense in a top-pairing role. So, and, you know, I, Chris Terrian broke it down on Snow the Goalie last week where he said, you would be surprised what an extra two minutes on the ice per night will do to a guy, especially on the back end, that you just feel more fresh. Like, every couple of minutes, you're on the bench resting instead of going out there for another shift. And I think that's what we've seen with the Flyers this entire season. Maybe aside from Sanheim, Ristolainen, because I don't think their deployment has changed all that much in Ryan Ellis being out, but... For Provorov and Braun and Keith Yandel, I think those three were the guys who were most affected, or affected rather, of Ryan Ellis being out. Because Provorov's having to do more because he's playing with a much inferior partner. Justin Braun is playing probably two minutes more per night because he's on the second pair and the top PK unit aside from the third pair and the second PK unit. And Keith Yandel has been playing with the likes of Kevin Connaughton and Nick Sealer and has essentially been the number five defenseman all year long instead of the number six. And if he was the number six, he was probably only going to be playing 10 minutes per night at five on five. If we're being honest with ourselves, like right now he's playing 12 and a half minutes per night. So Ryan Ellis, a guy who would have arguably been eating your most minutes at five on five is now kind of not there, and it's been this massive trickle-down effect for a lot of the defensemen. So it's tough that the Flyers don't have a guy who can really effectively play a shutdown role in your top four while simultaneously being able to move the puck up ice at the same time. And I think that's where I come back to not completely shitting and souring on, on a, a guy like Ivan Provorov. Because... When you're constantly being relied on as the guy to get the puck out of your zone and you're playing upwards of 26, 27 minutes a night, it does take a beating on you a bit. And look, it's hard to defend Ivan Provorov in the way of, you know, his underlying numbers and the way he's played a lot of times this year. But I do think there is something to be said that he's constantly relied on as the guy on that top pair to get the puck out of the zone. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, <laughs> the absence of Ellis has just fucked everything up. And 
you know, probably one of the big reasons why this turned into a lost season in the first place is just, you know, missing somebody of his caliber with nobody to throw into his place. And I'll be curious to see how they go about that next year. You know, obviously it depends on what they fucking plan on doing with the whole team. But if they roll back, you know, if they, 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 they go back and try and stay competitive, at least as well as they can, I'll be curious to see how they handle this defense. Because you clearly need a fallback option here. Uh, on the right side, and, you know, obviously Sanheim's fate will be in question with York hanging around, and it'll be interesting to see how that defense shakes out, because uh, if anything, they learned their lesson that you can't roll in with, you know, a top four that is set in stone with no changes, and a bottom, you know, your, your bottom pair and leftover stragglers that are just fucking worthless, and Connaughton, Sealer, York, and, you know, Justin Braun, who is very good, but well over his head at this point in his career at 34. So, yeah, it's uh, not a great situation the Flyers got there on uh, on defense. Do you think Justin Braun comes back next year? I've said numerous times that, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to signing him to even a three-year contract if the AEV was, like, $1 million or less. Because you've said it a lot of times, like, he's kind of like the guy who's the glue that holds everything together. And he's probably the veteran leader on the back end and has been since the retirement of Matt Niskanen. And he's been very vocal about this team being fragile mentally and all that. And I think that losing him would be a big hit to this team. Like, not to the same capacity of Matt Niskanen, but a similar type of loss. And you could move them because I think that, to, like, a team like Toronto, like, this is the exact kind of guy that they would want on their blue line to play, let's say, on the second pair with Jake Muzzin, slide Justin Hall down to the third pair with a guy like Rosmus Sandin, and Braun could kind of play that 4-5 role behind Muzzin and Brody and Morgan Riley. So I think that you could get a decent amount of assets for him if you elected to trade him ahead of the NHL trade deadline at the end of March. But that being said, are you going to move this guy, give up another right-handed defenseman when all Chuck Fletcher has pretty much been doing since he got to Philadelphia is try and bring in a you know right-handed defenseman? He brings in Matt Niskanen, he retires. He brings in Ryan Ellis, he's barely played. He brings in Rosmus Ristolainen, and while I think he's been good in his role, I don't think it's in the specific way that they thought slash hoped that he would be. So Justin Braun is the only kind of stabilizing right-shot defenseman they have on this roster. A guy who, no matter who they put him with, kind of fixes them. The problem solver in a lot of ways. So... I don't know if, you know, moving him just to recoup assets is the best avenue to go down. Because if your plan is to stay competitive, and this is what it ultimately comes back to, right? If you're going into a rebuild, then maybe just trade him and then you sign, you know, right shot defenseman X in the offseason. But then if you want to, you know, reload in the offseason and come back and try and be competitive next year which is something that I would assume they're going to try and do. Are you going to move a guy who has been oh so important to your team for the last three regular seasons? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do on the right side. I would assume Ristolainen comes back as well. I, I just don't... If you trade Ristolainen at the deadline, you can probably recoup most of the assets you gave up for him, at least a first-round pick. 
But then you're on the hunt for a second pair right-handed defenseman again. You have no interior options coming. And if you have to go out and get, you know, sign a Klingberg at that point, you're probably signing him far more than you can get Ristolainen for. Or you go out and get Klingberg at the deadline and flip Ristolainen. Like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. So, I would assume their hands are tied here with Ristolainen, which, again, <laughs> with Ellis being questionable moving forward... Obviously, you can't count on him to play an 82-game schedule. You know, do you want your number two guy to be Ristolainen, who just can't really step up and handle the bigger minutes? So you really do need a better swing guy on the third pair that can still play top four minutes, potentially top line minutes. And as much as I love Justin Braun, and as much as he's done for this team in that role, like, he's going to be a year older next year. He's going to be 35, like... Can you roll him out there again with Ivan Provorov on the top pair for at least half the season, if need be? And I don't know. That just doesn't seem right. Like you, you need, you need an extra body on that right side that can come in and kind of be the bumper between, you know, Ryan Ellis and Justin Braun. And I don't know who that is. They've thrown around, you know, Josh Manson in the past. Like he's still handling top four minutes with the Ducks, but, you know, is he going to be in their price range? Do the Flyers even bother fucking adding anybody anyway if they're going to tear down? Like, it's just, I think it's a little too early in the year to get an exact feel on what happens moving forward, but yeah, as we stated a little earlier, like, their defense is going to be pretty interesting to watch this summer because they've got some pretty big questions to ask themselves. And then you also go in the intangible chemistry part of the argument. Like, Justin Braun is a guy that has pretty much developed chemistry with every left-shot defenseman on this team. You know, he's, for the lion's share of the last 12 months, been Ivan Provorov's partner. And I think in, you know, in a pinch for a two, three, four-game, maybe five-game sample size, he's passable in that role. Maybe not next year, but I think he's okay in that role. We've seen him kind of been the preferred partner for Cam York at this point. I think they've worked really well together. And if a guy like Igor Zamula came up next year, maybe he's the perfect guy. Like I've said for a long time, he's the perfect type of partner for a young left-shot defenseman. And the other side of this is, is I think he comes at a cheap cost, especially if you give him an extra year of term. Like, I know if you give him a three-year contract, it would probably take him till he's 38. But the thing is, is if he's making a million bucks, you can bury him in the AHL worst-case scenario. Like, I would have no issue giving Justin Braun a three-year deal at one million per year if it meant him staying. Because to your point, if you try and replace him in free agency, you're going to overpay. Like, even if you go after a lesser guy like uh, Jan Ruda, I think you're at least going to probably pay upwards of $2 million, 1.75 or something, if not more, as opposed to Justin Braun, who's, you know, you can try and retain him in-house, and a guy that everyone is already comfortable with. And historically, since Chuck has got here, he has steered clear of being a big-time, you know, player in free agency. Like, all of his biggest acquisitions he acquired before free agency opened. He traded for Kevin Hayes and negotiated with him exclusively in early June. He traded for Niskan. He traded for Braun. He traded for Ellis. He traded for Cam Atkinson. Like, the only free agent guys he's really signed is Martin Jones, Nate Thompson, Derek Broussard, and Eric Gustafson. 
And, you know, it's kind of been 50-50 in that regard, and none of them have been major signings. You know, for what it's worth, I think Derek Broussard's loss is a lot bigger than we, you know, may have thought. I think he's been fantastic when he's in the lineup, but that's a different argument. So I think based on Chuck's history since being in Philadelphia, it would lead me to believe that if the opportunity arises to retain Justin Braun on a cheap contract— they will look to explore that avenue if they hope to stay competitive next year. But I do think Justin Brown's the exact type of defenseman that a lot of teams look for at the trade deadline. Like, right shot, veteran guy, can probably play anywhere in your lineup, has been to a Stanley Cup final before, so he has that coveted experience. I know people don't want to hear it, but GMs do covet that in the NHL. Clearly a guy who is used to and has been conditioned to be in a winning environment in those years in San Jose in the mid-2010s. You know, I, I look at a team like Toronto, and you could probably get a decent haul from them. Maybe get a younger right-shot defenseman like Timothy Lilgren back in a trade in addition to a draft pick. But then the question arises, are you planning to stay competitive next year? Are you going to try and just replace Justin Braun in free agency, at which point... Maybe it's better to keep him. It's uh, with Justin Braun. I don't think there's a wrong answer. If that makes sense. I mean, I can't imagine if he hits free agency that anybody's given him a big payday at this career at this point in his career. I think it's more just what he wants in the last few years of his career. I'd be totally fine signing that guy for three years at one million dollars and him just being the seventh defenseman if need to be. You know, exactly. chilling in the press box and swapping roles with whoever's on the third pair every now and again. If like you can do that. It doesn't matter. But you know, I think from a behind the scenes standpoint, he seems to be one of the more vocal guys in the shitty state of this team as far as leadership goes. So you gotta wonder if he's gonna check his fucking ticket and get the fuck out of here because he wants to go in a better environment. You know, I think that plays a factor as well. So whole lot of things to consider here. Uh talking about, you know, not only Justin Braun, but the defense is a whole moving into next season, because there's there's a lot of moving parts here and a lot of things to consider. You know, when it comes to reevaluating and reanalyzing and kind of rebuilding what has been a really bad defense overall. What about a guy like Ristolainen? Not in the sense that we haven't liked the way he's played, but do you think they could maybe look to go in a different direction because he hasn't been the type of defenseman they were probably hoping for? It wouldn't surprise. I I don't think. I, <laughs> hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if they trade him, but it wouldn't surprise me if they resign him either. Because, again, if, if we're talking straight trade deadline here, like, in, other than Claude Giroux, he's probably the guy with the most value to you. And considering yeah, what you gave up to get him, you know, you can recoup probably not all of that, but most of it. You know, I would not be surprised if to the right person they can get Ristolina for a first-round pick. You know, that's not, a, that's not nothing for somebody like him. But, you know... <laughs> What do you do moving forward? And again, I mentioned this earlier. Do you now you have to go out and find if you're okay? If they're going to stay competitive, you need to go find a second pair right handed defenseman in his wake. So you gave up a ton of assets for Erstalin and before you flip him at the deadline for most but not all of recouping that. And then you either have to go out and trade for another guy or you have to go out and find. You know, somebody in the free agent market, somewhere on the lines of John Klingberg. And, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if they don't like what they have in Ristolainen or don't think that he can play more minutes, and again, this goes back to Ryan Ellis not being available, you know, having a 
second-pair right-handed guy that can play first-pair minutes with Provorov, that can play well with Provorov, you know, is of the utmost importance as well. And it prevents you from spending money on somebody like Josh Manson for your third pair. You can keep Braun at $1 million, and you find somebody that's far more overall dynamic than Ristolainen. But it's just a matter of, do they want to invest even more in undoing their Ristolainen acquisition rather than just resigning this guy? And that's there. Like, what the fuck does this guy want and you resign him? Can you get him for a very similar $5.4 million hit? Or is this guy going to look for more of the six to seven million hit? Because in that case, he can get bent. I've got no use for a line at six to seven million dollars. But you know, five by five, I wouldn't hate. But again, you know, it, it all depends on how they feel about Ryan Ellis, and I think they learned their lesson that they can't roll in assuming that he's going to be the guy. You have to look at Ellis as more of a luxury than a reliable, uh, you know, number one defenseman. So I don't know. I. I, I I would need to see what the you know see how the trade market shakes out, and I mean, I know the free agent market's pretty goddamn piss poor on that right side, especially. Um, so you know, if they can find somebody via trade, and I can't think of any name off the top of my head, but some you know a top four right-handed defenseman who they feel is more overall dynamic than Ristolainen, if their intent is to be competitive, I would not be surprised if they attempt that. But uh, again, I would not be surprised if he sticks around either. With Ristolainen. It's, I think it's just a guy that if he's going to be in your top four, you need a guy who's going to be ahead of him almost each and every night. Yeah. Like, let's say if Matt Niskanen was around, like, let's say you put Rista line in with the Flyers in 2020. I think that that would have worked perfectly. But to your point, now you have to account that Ryan Ellis is barely going to be there. And at which point, what are you going to do if you retain Ristolainen, who I think we could all agree is not a guy that could really do, I don't know, like spot work on your top pair. He's perfectly placed where he is. And I think that ideally a guy like Josh Manson would be the partner that you'd be looking for. But the thing is, is that you know, he's going to be 31 years old soon. And are you going to sign him to, let's say, a four-year $20 million contract that takes him all the way till he's 35? Because I think ideally that's what you want to give Rista Linen. So then it, you look to a guy like John Klingberg. <clears throat> and Klingberg's probably a guy who's going to get $6 million. But maybe he's the better option there that could play with Provorov consistently and then when Ellis is there, he plays with Sanheim. And when he's not there, Braun is there. Or Cam York, who's ever the, you know, the second pair left shot defenseman at that time. So it's unfortunate because I do think that if Ryan Ellis was there, this would have worked out perfectly. Or even if he was there, you know, four out of every five games type of thing. And Justin Braun once out of every five games had to go on to the top pair. I think that would be fine. But when a guy is missing this much time each and every night, you need a better option to move up the lineup than a Ristolainen or a Justin Braun. And I think that all in all, this isn't even the Ristolainen acquisition not panning out. It's the Ellis acquisition that's yes. not panning out yep. and it having a massive trickle-down effect. Yep. Because when this defense is fully healthy, I think it was the game against Boston where it was the only time we saw all of them playing I think Dallas, we saw that too, but Ellis was playing with Keith Yandel at that, in that game. 
the we saw one game where everyone was playing where they were supposed to be and they looked really good and i said that when this defense was healthy i thought it was among the deepest in the nhl Obviously, a small sample size, but Provov, Ellis were amazing. Sanheim and Ristolainen were even a disaster at that time. And imagine that they were playing the way they have been if Ellis and Provov were together. And then Braun being down with Keith Yandel would be a massive upgrade. But because Ellis hasn't been there, it's raised all these questions like, well, Justin Braun's going to be 35 soon. Can he still continue to be the, the top guy on the top on the top pairing and on the top PK? Is Ristolainen a good enough, you know, number three option if in an ideal world he's a four or a five? So it's really thrown a monkey wrench into this whole problem, the Ryan Ellis acquisition, that is. Unless you go out and find a new top right-handed defenseman and Ellis is essentially your second pair guy. And then you bring somebody like Manson in on your third pair to recoup the second pair. Where the fuck are you going to find a number one right-handed defenseman in this market? I have no idea. But that would seem like another reasonable outcome to all of this as well, as you find somebody to play alongside Provorov full-time rather than hoping Ellis is there for half the season. You get rid of Ristolainen and you bring in, uh, you, you demote Ellis to the second pair and then find somebody in your third pair to be more of a bottom four guy versus a top four guy. So that's possible too. I don't know if they're intent on spending money on a, another top defenseman, but... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's so many different outcomes. Anything that they uh, do, I can't even. <laughs> I am glad I'm not in charge of this team trying to make these decisions because this sucks. It, and you also have to take into account, like, okay, like we're gonna go get John Klingberg in free agency. Well, maybe so is everyone else. Oh, we're gonna go get Josh Manson in free agency. Well, maybe so is everyone else. And is Klingberg, the guy you want to dump eight million dollars in for, you know, seven eight years. No thanks. Well, that's the. That's the other part he's of it. He's 29. Do you know he's fucking 29? Where the hell is the time gone? He just got here. <laughs> and and the other thing is, is that Klingberg has kind of been playing like third fiddle behind Heiskanen and Essa Lindell for the last year or so. So are you going to bring him in to kind of be like the 1A slash 2B to kind of lean on him and Provorov to be your top two guys? Like, I, I, I do think that Provorov playing with a competent puck mover and just a competent top pairing defenseman extremely elevates his game and look i spoke to an eastern conference assistant general manager earlier this week and he told me that you know he hasn't been as good as you know people would have expected but he's in the ballpark of a low end 1d high end 2d who has suffered from poor partners so people know how good provorov is but I think it's like we always say, like, there's this big problem of people thinking that a number one defenseman automatically means Hedman or McAvoy or Adam Fox. When a 1D, in my opinion at least, could be Hampus Lindholm or Morgan Riley. So that's kind of like where he falls in, for my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I think he could be elevated if you put him with the right guy, but he just hasn't had the right guy all that often in his career. He said, you know... 60-some games of Matt Niskanen and uh, four games of Ryan Ellis. One of those was a very sad injured game. So, you know, uh, I, I I don't know. I have no idea. I would assume trying to find somebody to fucking keep Pro Rob as good as you can get him would be pretty high on the priority list. But 
again, where the hell are you going to find a top right-handed defenseman right now? So they don't exactly grow on trees. They it's got... the hottest commodity. Yeah. Outside of, like, top-line, top-six centers, yeah. right-shot defensemen are, like, the toughest thing to come by. Yeah, won't be easy. Uh, you know, you got Klingberg out there, but, you know... Is his overall game better than Ristolainen at this point? He's 29. You want to sign him for big money long term and have him fall apart in three or four years? Like you're already having givesy backsies with Sean Couturier and his fucking contract. You know, do you want to do that again on the blue line? Like, fuck, man, trying to get all these pieces to fit together is uh, not the easiest thing in the world. And that's that's a good point about is Klingberg even better than Ristolainen at this point? Like. In terms of Corsi, you know, Klingberg is slightly better, half a percent better. In terms of expected goals for per 60, Ristolainen is fairly better. Expected goals against per 60, you know, Klingberg is slightly better. In terms of shots for per 60, you have Ristolainen, who's very good, much better. In terms of shots against per 60, you have Klingberg, who's fairly better. So, like, for me, it's kind of like, is there even that big of a difference? Now, obviously, historically, Klingberg is the better guy, so you could bank on, you know, track record more, which I'd understand, but then you're still signing a guy who who is two and a half, three years older and probably giving much more money, and how big of an improvement is he really? So uh, I would agree with that, that, like, is changing Ristolainen for Klingberg and paying, you know, two, three million dollars more per season for Klingberg worth it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> man, no matter what the fuck scenario we've come up with so far, there's like just as many negatives as there are positives. It's it's really it's I I just don't think people realize what overdeployment can do to a guy, you know, and a guy like Klingberg, like he's putting up these significantly better numbers, or not even these, let's say, slightly better numbers than Pro uh, than Ristolainen, but his offensive zone start percentage is fifty six point eight. That's ten percent higher about than Ristolainen. So maybe those slightly better defensive numbers are just a product of starting, you know, ten percent more of the time in the offensive zone. So it's these are things that you have to take into consideration here. Like I, to me, like they're pretty much the same caliber of player at this point this year, Ristolainen and and John Klingberg. Yeah. And Klingberg is two and a half years older and historically speaking is worth more money and would probably get more money than Rasmus Ristolainen. So I, I just it's tough. I know everyone wants better, but until you get an actual top pairing guy, because for you, is Klingberg a guy that you want on your top pair each and every night? Like, it's... I think until Ryan Ellis comes back, it doesn't matter if it's Klingberg or Ristolainen. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably very uh, similar. Um, you know, I'm sure they each have their own strengths, but I mean, their overall game, I don't think you're getting much more value in one than you would the other at this point in their respective careers. Yeah, it's and then it's also, like, the age thing, which is a big thing. Like, we yeah. don't want this team to keep getting older. Like, they, they made this team older this, this summer, which is okay because I think 
that, you know, it still is a better hockey team. But you can only keep getting older so much. And the thing is, is like how much better is Klingberg than Ristolainen at this point of his career? So it's, I don't know. Like I, I would say maybe Josh Manson would be the best guy. But then you get into the age thing that he's even older than Klingberg is. I think Josh Manson is the prototypical, very good, like the best guy that you could get here. But I don't think that you can move out wrist to line in to bring in Josh Manson because, no. again, getting older. The only way that I could see them bringing in Josh Manson is if they replace Justin Braun with Josh Manson. But then you're going to pay $5 million for your third pair right shot defenseman when everyone's healthy. <laughs> yeah, they almost got a. I don't know. All goes back Unless... to Ryan uh, and I don't want to go too much farther down this rabbit hole, but the only <laughs> other thing that I could think of is that if you moved on from Sanheim and allocated that money to Josh Matson, I would do that. Because <laughs> then you have a healthy, let's say, top six next year of Provrov, Ellis, York, Manson, Zamula, Ristolainen, let's say. I mean, it's the only way that makes sense. Sanheim needs to go sooner or later because you got York and Zimula breathing down their throats, and York is clearly pretty fucking good. You know, you can probably lap him right now unless you move him to the right side full time, which is not the way to get the most out of fucking Travis Sanheim. You know, you only have signed him, uh, only have him signed for one more year anyway at four point six, like four point six for one year for Sanheim. Like, I'm sure if you dangle that out there, some team's gonna swoop that up pretty goddamn quick. You can move forward with Cam York as your second line. Uh, second pair lefty, and then you probably give Zamula. I would assume, I don't think he makes the jump full-time this year, but sometime next season come up and he can be your, your third pair lefty alongside Justin Braun. Or, you know, Josh Manson. It's very complicated. This whole Ryan Ellis business is... Yeah, that's that seems to be the crux of this whole issue here, is the fact that your number one righty uh, cannot be uh, accounted for more often than not. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, well the Flyers. I believe they have a back to back. I hate back to backs. Got a. Uh, oh, they played Detroit Tuesday. Thought it was an Islanders game. Oh, well, whatever. Islanders tonight. Detroit tomorrow. Columbus on Thursday. Buffalo on Saturday. So, if there was ever a time for the Flyers to string a few wins together, this is the week to do it. Um, you know, not that we want them to win any games, but they'll, they'll win tonight and everyone will be back on the fucking playoff wagon because they are every time they put two wins together. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll be, uh, it's a pretty normal week here. Be back tomorrow with Shane, Wednesday with Sisterly Pod, Thursday with you, Friday with Frequent Flyer, and then the whole cycle starts again next week. So, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod, and heart countdown underscore, but again, that one doesn't really fucking matter much these days, does it? So, uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at ADEMARCA25. All right, everybody, until next time, goodbye and good night.